This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 27th, the Suburbs versus City Parental Deathmatch Edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mother of Harry, five, Sam, three, and Wally, a week away from one. And I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is eight. And Harper, who is six. Hey, Dan. Hey. So on today's show, we're going to talk to our colleague, Hannah Rosen, who recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic about coming to terms with her son's Asperger's diagnosis just four months before the American Psychiatric Association ditched the label. And then city versus suburbs. Where is it better to raise kids? Dan and I will duke it out. Unless, Dan, you can't hack it and you need to leave the studio and drive your station wagon to an olive garden. (laughs) But first... (laughs) Our parenting fails or triumphs for the week. Oh, actually, but even before that, a very important announcement. Oh, yes. Dan, get free refills while I'm making this announcement. Okay. Um, Some of you are listening to this podcast because you subscribe to the wonderful Double X Gab Fest. And a few months ago, our parenting show just started appearing in your iTunes feed. Well, no more. This is the last episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting that will appear in the Double X podcast feed. So, to receive new episodes of this show... You'll need to subscribe either to the Slate Daily Podcast or to the Mom and Dad Podcast feed. Search for Slate Mom and Dad in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Don't miss any episodes. Search for Slate Mom and Dad in iTunes right now and subscribe. We'll pause for a second so you can do this or write a note or pause this podcast while you go do that. Allison, you did great even through your tubercular cough from city pollution. (laughs) Thank you. It's amazing. Um, Okay. So subscribe. Now, on to fails and triumphs. Dan, you go first. Uh, I have a huge parenting fail this time. A really amazing, incredible parenting fail. Uh, Although really, actually, it uh, it is a fairy fail. It was not I who failed, but a fairy, the... Tooth Fairy did not come by accident. Uh, Lyra lost a tooth, and the Tooth Fairy just forgot to come. It was so Stuck in traffic. It was Valentine's Day. 
Um, and Ali and I had a romantic evening of working all night on different computers in different rooms. And, um, and then we just, it just didn't happen. She didn't show up. And the look on Lyra's face when she walked into our room in the morning holding her tooth was incredible. Oh, my God. So, anyways, the, uh, the tooth fairy came the next night. What did you tell her? What was your... She, the Tooth Fairy gave Lyra $2 and a novelty necklace that Lyra had liked at a museum <laughs> gift shop we had been at that day. And uh, the Tooth Fairy also wrote a note in cursive Tooth Fairy handwriting that said that one of her assistant fairies had unfortunately been shot by Cupid's arrow and had fallen in love with a forest sprite and had forgotten all her duties. Uh, and the Tooth Fairy was really sorry. Very creative. Yeah. Okay, that is a good fail. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you saved it, though, in the end. Well, I hope so. I have a triumph. Sorry. Um, and I'm feeling actually pretty smug about it. Last week, our kids were off school. <laughs> Public schools in New York are have this annoying thing called mid February or mid winter break. Do you guys have that the week of no. President's Day? Okay. No. Well, we do. So we decided to take a family trip to California, where my in laws live. Uh, but we rarely go because of the long plane ride with three boys. I just can't um, handle it. Although it was fine, the plane ride is fine, and the trip was a huge success. And I think I know why. Partly because maybe the kids are getting older, but they're still really little. But I think mostly because normally I do a lot of advanced planning and have high expectations, and I think we need to have a lot of activities. And this time, we just did a whole lot of nothing. We swam. The kids ran around outside. We just didn't do much. And I sort of didn't put the pressure on myself or on anyone else. I let the kids watch a lot of TV in the morning. And it was great. So I feel like that was a triumph. That sounds like a great vacation. That's a great triumph. We have a general rule that vacations, for example, are the only time that our kids can eat as much sugar cereal as they want. Which sometimes backfires. No, it's fine. Like, vacation is just a time for, like, who gives a shit? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Wait, I, I have a parenting triumph. Can I I have a great parenting triumph? Hannah, it's Hannah Roses. <laughs> How did you get here? I sure, just, tell I, us your triumph. I'm so proud of myself. This is, in my 13 years of parenting, really one of my, my high points, which is why I'm busting in like this. So I go to my parent-teacher conference, and my kindergarten, this is for my kindergarten son, the youngest of my children, and the teacher says, uh, you know, what about the science fair project? I think he'd really like one, and they're due tomorrow. <laughs> And I think, you know, because he's the third child, like, I have no idea when the science fair is. I never read whatever it was in his backpack that said when the science fair was. And so we concocted the most awesome science experiment, which was begun and finished in half an hour. And it's just fabulous. Please tell us what it was. So I say, shit, we need a science project. My middle son, who's 10, who we will discuss today, says, well, Giddy really likes balls. How about we drop balls from a table and see how high they bounce? And so we stood Gideon up on a table. We gathered all of his balls because he (laughs) loves sports, all of them, every football, baseball, whatever we had in the house, drop them. I measured how how they bounce. I wrote up the poster. It was done. And he loves it. He loves it. It just was great. It sounds like you really aced this kindergarten science fair. I can't believe they have science fair for (laughs) kindergarten. Well, neither can I. And I bet all the other moms in the class who are like first-time moms spent like weeks on the science project. Yeah. So Good I'm job. psyched. Good That's triumph. awesome. Good you job. guys both yeah. had great triumphs that will make other parents feel terrible. Good work. <laughs> Good work. Good work. So our first topic today, uh, and we're joined by Hannah Rosen, who um, is right here sitting in the studio with me. In this month's Atlantic, Hannah writes about the American Psychiatric Association's elimination of the Asperger's diagnosis from the DSM-5. It happened just months after her son, Jacob, was diagnosed with Asperger's. It was a little like being an agnostic who finally turns evangelical, Hannah wrote. 
finding comfort and guidance in a new fold at just the moment when the Bible is exposed as the work of false apostles. Slate fans, of course, know Hannah from her writing and podcasting for our magazine, our superior magazine. <laughs> uh, but we're very glad to welcome her here to the DC studio. So hi, Hannah. Hi. Thank so you. So you write the, in The Atlantic that, you're, uh, that you and your husband resisted getting your son tested for really quite a long time until he was 10. He was 10 when the diagnosis finally came. And I think that decision, whether to test or not to test, can be really fraught for a lot of parents. What caused you guys to wait? Many parents love the diagnosis. Many parents rush into the diagnosis, get it as early as possible. I'm mm-hmm. like this with medical problems, too. Like, I'd rather not take the PSA. I've never had a mammogram. Like, the labels just don't. <laughs> Expert advice from Hannah right. Rosen. <laughs> Expert advice from Hannah Rosen. You know, it's, it's like a literary thing. You just think, oh, I'm going to describe this very special child and all his perfect specialness. And, you know, I'd say, oh, you know, you, you come up with words and sort of beautiful descriptions and adjectives and you, you spend half an hour trying to describe to the teacher what the kid is like when really you should just say he has Asperger's. But, well, that's know, interesting, though, because I, I would feel the exact same way. Like, I don't think that either of my kids is on the spectrum, although, although Lyra certainly has traits that in maybe at the absolute – at peak Asperger's in 1996 or whatever, maybe she would have like – gotten a, a like surprise diagnosis but i but i would have no interest if she had any of these traits and like getting getting like nailing that down in that way it would feel like limiting to me but i guess to many people it doesn't it, and that's sort of at the heart of this question is what does that diagnosis do and how does it change you and your family and how did, what did it do for you guys in those four months well, that it mattered? I almost think of it as like, you know, you're walking on the beach and you see a big rock and you approach and there's a tiny crack in the rock and, and you, you're, you're pretty sure that if you walk through the crack, you're just going to be squeezed in there and it's going to be a horrible experience. Mm-hmm. But then you walk through the crack and you come out the other side and in fact, it's a very rich experience and there's a whole other landscape on the other side that you just failed to see because it was blocked by a rock, the rock being me. Mm-hmm. I'm the rock. <laughs> you know, my own resistance, which by the way was not, you know, it wasn't avoidance. It it wasn't like I tried to pretend that my son had none of these. I was happy to talk about his symptoms all day long. I just didn't want to give them a specific name uh, because it seemed less interesting. So once we sort of went through the crack and came out the other side, then you enter this very rich world. I mean, right Wait, can I just we're... interrupt and ask, did you go through the crack? Did you did you finally end up having the test because you thought you needed the diagnosis to get certain services? Or what was it that changed? It's hard to explain what changed. It just becomes uh, awkward after a while. Like, after a while, it just doesn't feel right. You know, a kid reaches a certain age and you think you're waiting for things to disappear. I think this is a common parenting thing. You think some things are just symptoms of being little and they'll just resolve themselves over time. But in fact, if a kid is really on the spectrum, it's just going to get harder and harder and harder. And so by the time he reaches fourth grade and things are getting incredibly difficult, he happened to have a really hard year. Uh, he was getting in fights a lot. He, it was just clear that he was not fitting in yeah. and that he needed more help than we could give him in our casual parental descriptions. And so at that point, it becomes useful to know exactly what the deal is, like exactly, you know, these tests are long and elaborate and they take days and days and days, these diagnoses, um, and they include sort of a verbal test with with a tester, um, who writes up a really, really long report. And not every Asperger's kid is like every other Asperger's kid. So this many-page test will, will, will pretty much focus in on what it is your child is having trouble doing? Is it processing speed? Is it, you know, an ADHD thing? You know, there's a lot of uh, comorbidity with Asperger's. It comes along with a couple of other diagnoses. Who uh, pays for that test? 
In New York, you can get the New York government to pay for the test. In D.C., it's very, very difficult to get the D.C. government to pay for the services. So we paid for it. And it's also tremendously expensive, which is why I think a lot of people don't do it. Mm -hmm. They may get a casual Asperger's diagnosis from a psychologist, but the actual neuropsych evaluation is really, really expensive. And that you have to get that to get... Yeah. So to have an official diagnosis, you go through this. It's really like a two week. I mean, he went for, you know, maybe five, six, seven days. He like goes for many days through these long tests. And yeah, and then comes back a report which gives you a diagnosis. In this case, Asperger's, a word that is no longer a diagnosis (laughs) several months after we got it. So you get that and you feel? I felt... Nothing really. I mean, he didn't care. Like I, you know, I he we have a longtime psychologist, and he, you know, made this whole book for Jacob and explained to him like this mind is like every other mind. Um, and I read him a page from John Elder Robeson's memoir. There's a fantastic page. You know, these days, uh, Spectrum kids generally fixate on computers and computer programming and Minecraft, and in those days, it was machines. So John Elder Robeson was the sound man for Kiss, <laughs> actually, and he has this great page where he. He, he's up at the at the high level of the concert controlling the special effects in a KISS concert. And the chapter is called One with the Machine. And that chapter, more than any other, reminded me of Jacob's feelings about programming and computers. So I, I kind of had this long lead up and, and read him this chapter thinking he would identify and said, oh, you know, so there's this word Asperger's. And he couldn't care less. It was literally like, okay, can I have a bag of potato chips now? (laughs) (laughs) It was utterly meaningless to him. Um, And yet it became really meaningful to me and David over time. Because you changed a school. Yeah, we changed a school. It's like suddenly you enter a world. It's like clarity. It's like the film is lifted and you're like, okay, he has Asperger's. We should look for an Asperger's school. You know, we should read something about Asperger's. I should read these memoirs that I then wrote this story about because now I understand that he has Asperger's. And so it's just a much easier way of entering the system. I'm now like a little bit at the other side, but Mm -hmm. we can get to that eventually. Can you explain for our listeners then – so how disorders along the spectrum are now considered in the DSM-5? How did it change? How did the APA change this diagnosis? So they – the APA – there was a study done which showed that the diagnosis of Asperger's is fairly random and depended largely on where you were diagnosed. So they felt that it wasn't accurate enough. Uh, and, and, and in the meantime, over these you know, 10, 15, 20 years, a community of people who strongly identify with the word Asperger's as separate from autism and the spectrum – has has coalesced and it's so, sort of privileged over autism yes. in a way. Like it's like high, it's a specific high functioning designation. Yes, and Daniel Tammet and John Elder Robeson. There was a few memoirs that were written by people who had Aspergers, and they're very high functioning. The fact that they can write memoirs and they they pr- we we came to think of them as special minds. Like we think of Silicon Valley or Mark Zuckerberg or all these people we sort of casually diagnose as having Aspergers because they have spectrumy traits. And so Aspergers became the disease of the moment. It became this kind of like high – it's almost an enviable disease, you know, in the way we all want our kids to be special these Mm -hmm. days. Like that was the diagnosis that somehow uh, connoted specialness. Like you could do some amazing things even if you couldn't get a girlfriend for a while. But the APA – in doing the research, felt like it didn't actually designate anything. Yeah, it felt like it didn't didn't designate anything, and I think partly it was also a democratic decision. They wanted to create this large thing called the spectrum, and they wanted to connect, you know, one end of the spectrum with the other end of the spectrum. And in our culture, I think we are moving towards a point. The first generation of Aspergers people wanted to be this kind of separate tribe, but I think 
you know, as time has gone on, they want it to be a hazy line between Asperger's and normal, which is why I ultimately wasn't that upset that the that the diagnosis went away because it's nicer to, to sort of go back to the hazy space, I think, because Asperger's kids do kind of, you know, delicately cross the line on and off the spectrum. So, so I don't want them to live in a closed box with a nice label on it. But do There's you think lot. of Jacob as on the autism spectrum? Is that like a a, cate- a category for you? Well, I still say he has Asperger's, but it's funny. It's easier for me to say that he has Asperger's now that Asperger's doesn't exist because it's not a real thing. So <laughs> I'm not describing something definite and in perpetuity. I'm describing a word that we've all decided is inaccurate. So so using that word has become easier to me now that it's not official. That doesn't make any sense or it does make sense. It doesn't make that much sense. No, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> to me because other parents I know who have kids who were diagnosed with Asperger's long before this change have made are not are basically not recognizing it. I mean they are still they are still definitively and determinedly referring to their kids in this way, um, referring to the services they get in this way, identifying with other parents in this way and not necess- it's not like they're broadening their group of parents who they feel they specifically relate to to include all kids on the spectrum if they hadn't already. Um, and so it seems like it seems like removing this designation isn't necessarily going to help people, is it? Like, it does it help a kid who's 14 to say, you exist somewhere on this hazy space? Or does it actually help them more to say, you have this thing and you have this in common with these other specific people who have traits that you might recognize in yourself? And this is how we can help you get through what are probably going to be the most difficult years of your life. Like, isn't that more? Useful? Yeah, you're forcing me to think of this more concretely than abstractly. And if I if I tell the truth, you know, Jacob goes to a school which is an autism school. It's called Ivy Mount. The whole school is an autism school, but there's an Asperger's wing. Mm-hmm. And it's just the Asperger's. Like, you look at the kids in his class and they're, you know, just like him. I mean, not exactly right. like him, but they're obviously Asperger kids. And if I think about it, I wouldn't know how else to refer to them. Like, that's the Asperger. You could tell immediately that they're the Asperger's kids <laughs> and not the autism kids. Right. You know, it's very different how their parents talk. You know, parents with children who are severely autistic face an entirely different set of um, challenges than, than the Asperger's kids. Because with the Asperger's kids, they are always kind of hazing in and out of neurotypical. So you, you we none of us still know, like, what they'll become. You know, we think, oh, they could live in our house, you know, for the rest of their lives. Or they could become some genius computer programmer. Like, we right. really don't know, which is not the conversation that the parents of children with autism have. So maybe you're right. You know, it will remain a cultural designation. On the other hand, when I read John Elder Robeson, who's so strong, it's like the Irish. It's like the Irish, you know, making <laughs> sure that their children have to learn Gaelic, you know. Uh-huh. And he writes a memoir. His second memoir, which I write about in this story, is about his son. And like he, he it does feel to me like he's forcing an identity on his son, which his son doesn't want to wear that tightly. Like his son wants to fall in love, you know, and his son wants to go to college and not necessarily be as, you know, Asperger's pride as his father was. That's what I wondered from your piece. I mean, a lot of it is about how classification and labels help or don't help uh, parents, what it brought to you in in terms of a sense of community and support and being able to put your finger on something and then also like sort of how you kind of moved beyond that. But for Jacob, I know you said when you explained it to him when he was diagnosed, he didn't care. But I wonder as he gets older, do like is is a label more useful or 
you know, will, will he need that? Or is it just like the, the rest of us that like we make our own labels, we put ourselves in our, like we figure out wh- where we fit in? So that's the open question for me. And you can have me on in five years and I'll answer that question. <laughs> um, you know, over time being at the school, I've started to feel constricted by the Asperger's label. It feels in some ways crippling. Like if you always are describing your child through that lens, you let them get away with a lot. You forget about their personality. I write about this in the story sometimes. Like you have these behavior plans. And, you know, as Jacob often is whacking his little brother like really, really hard, um, you know, I have to sort of do I put that through the Asperger's lens or do I just like, right. you know, tie his hand behind his back and shove him in his like, it's right. you know, my he's, brother did not have Asperger's and he also hit me. Exactly. And so often that's what brothers do. So there is a sense in which all of these diagnoses are at some level limiting. Like we have had playdates with many parents and, you know, they generally follow the the play, the Asperger's playdate rule like to the letter, like the kids should hang out for an hour and a half and, you know, they should have a scheduled playdate. It's like, why? Like, just let them go upstairs and play. You know what I mean? It becomes a thing that you, you really can't wriggle out of after a while. And so that starts to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Okay. We would love to hear from, I, I, I have a feeling a lot of our listeners are dealing with, you know, the, these similar questions. And so we'd love to hear from you. Email us um, at momanddad at slate.com, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com with your experiences if you have um, children with Asperger's or if you are an adult with Asperger's. Um, thanks, Anna. Sure. Each week we take a call and question from a listener, and we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Ask us anything, and we will try to answer it. So here is today's question. It comes from Mike in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, this is Mike from Madison, Wisconsin. I have an 8-year-old son, and the question is how to effectively get him to stop using the iPad that we have. He's really hooked on a lot of these games, these kind of adventure fantasy games. He likes one now called Arcane Legends. But he he gets so into it and gets very upset when it's time to be done, when screen time's over. We set the timer and it's time to be done. And he just is very cranky and doesn't want to stop. And it's an argument all the time. So that's my question. He plays some other ones with dragons and other things that I mean, they think are uses his brain in some ways. And he's, he's reading and doing some math and some strategy. So it's not the worst thing in the world, but he doesn't want to stop. Oh. Okay, Mike, you are in luck because Hannah wrote a piece last year about how we should think about screen time in the age of the iPad. So, Hannah, what's your expert advice? I wish I had some more detail about exactly how long the kid is playing. He can go one of two ways. If he wants to do the really brave experiment that I did with my kid, only because I was writing the story, he can try letting the kid play as much as he wants without saying a word and see what happens. Because in my experience, the kid gets sick of it. You know, it's not that kids spend three or four hours, um, but he probably won't do that. So, So the second thing I would say, which I have done with my son, who's deep in, you know, adventure fantasy games and would like to spend his whole life playing. Minecraft is that the timer is a kind of mean way. If you think about your own life, let's say you were writing a story and someone set a timer and you were just at the last paragraph uh, and the timer went off and someone shut the computer on you. It, it, it really makes you feel like you have absolutely no control and it's genuinely infuriating. So what I've done with my son is I actually talk to him and say, are you in another round? Are you about to enter another world? Like I'm a little looser with the time than it has to be absolutely half an hour. And he that has really worked. So, you know, sometimes it will go 
for 36 minutes or 42 minutes or 26 minutes. But I let the ending be uh, be it be natural to what he's playing. And I think that signals two things. One, that he has a little bit of control and two, that you're interested. In other words, you're not always saying that this thing he's doing is evil and bad and rotting his brain, but that you're genuinely interested in the actual happenings of the game. And I think that softens the interaction between parent and child. That's really good advice. The first thing you said, also, you know, we were super limiting with television with with our my oldest kid, especially when he was young. And we have friends who live near you guys who have four kids, and they just always have had the TV on, just always, since their kids were born, just always have the TV on the background. And their kids have no interest in watching TV. And we, co- I mean, they occasionally do, but, like, we go over there with our kids, and the kids see the TV on, and they're glued, and their kids are like, let's go play. And I think that it's so <laughs> right. true that, like, the more we limit it, the, the, the more they want it, like anything else. Yeah, I mean, that would be, honestly, my advice is, it, you know... Let the kid play for a while and see what happens. I mean, obviously, don't do it at a time when the, he has to go to school five minutes from now. That That's what causes the problem. But if there is a time where you can just sort of let him sink into the game and play for a while and you don't worry about it and recognize that that day or those two days or those three days are a blip in the much longer, happier, rich life that that kid will be living, I think you – Mike from Addison will be a lot happier. Now, if, you know, a month goes by and the kid is literally playing every second of the day, then there's a problem that you need to address. And I think that Hannah's advice about letting a natural ending point come is really great. I also think that there are times when kids are so annoying about stopping doing something that you want them to stop doing that you just have to out and out punish, right? That at some point you have to say, if you can't be better about the end of this experience, you don't get to have the experience. And for my kids, it's not iPads. There are other things that they're so bad about the end of that experience that we don't get to have that experience for some time. But that is also generally an effective way of of keeping that at the front of their mind, that the way they end the fun thing has an impact on the next time they will get to do the fun really, thing. Really? That has no – that is not effective in my family. They really – I, I mean, mean we punish, but they don't remember or they don't it, care. My kids have reached the age where they remember. <laughs> okay. They, and I think eight is an age where you are a lot more likely to remember that. I mean, it depends on the kid, obviously. But at eight and at six, my kid's age, they get it. They get it much better than they used to. That's true. All right. Mike, let us know how it goes. We hope this was helpful. Um, I'd like to shout out a uh, uh, listener, Anton Finelli, um, who pointed out that in last episode's call, the one about um, kids in fancy restaurants, uh, Anton confirmed that I pronounced the name of super fancy Chicago restaurant Alinea incorrectly. I was wrong. Allison was right. I was wrong. I said <sighs> Alinea. It is Alinea. Allison was right. Also, the sad thing is that I was just so convinced that I was wrong and I was embarrassed because I always think I'm not sophisticated. Right. Can I ask a question? Screw you, why, people. Why do either of you know how to pronounce Well, I lived in Chicago. It turns out I don't. <laughs> right. I, I lived in Chicago. I just was convinced I did. Oh, okay. And I also just know about these things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I pretend to know about these things and am exposed on national radio by listener Anton Finelli. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Anton. So Anton also actually, as it happens, um, suggested our next topic uh, in an email. Um, so Allison, please introduce Anton's topic. Okay, Anton, your topic, parenting deathmatch, city versus suburbs. This time it's personal. 
In her book, The End of the Suburbs, Where the American Dream is Moving, Lee Gallagher makes the case that couples marrying later and having fewer children are staying in cities rather than making the traditional move to the suburbs right after popping out baby number one. I'm going to quote from a New York Times piece about her book, which says that, quote, By 2025, the majority of suburban households are expected to have no children. Teenagers are increasingly opting opting to go without driver's licenses. Millennials, economically strapped and witness to the housing crisis, say they prefer to live in urban environments. Boomers are reconsidering their large houses and landscape yards. So, basically, Dan, according to Lee Gallagher, I am winning. Right. For listeners, part of a dying cohort. Right. For listeners who haven't heard my spiel as many times as Dan has, I will give it, and then Dan can give his. My husband reluctantly and I wholeheartedly have chosen to raise our kids in Brooklyn, a thriving urban borough where everything from childcare to housing to food is more expensive than it is almost anywhere else in the country. We pay $3,000 to rent a 1,200-square-foot apartment, which by New York standards is big. and Palatial. Are, yeah, and we're very lucky to be able to afford it. We have one bathroom for two adults and three kids and a dog. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't use the bathroom, but he's in there. We're often, like, all in there at the same time, and he likes this, like, one corner of the bathroom. And it's not, like, a two-sink bathroom. It's just this tiny bathroom. Uh, we don't have laundry in our building, and yet I don't want to live anywhere else. Um, it's not like I take advantage of the city. Our kids have actually never been to the Met or MoMA, and since we pay our babysitter $16 an hour, we rarely try the restaurants I read about in New York Magazine. But I love raising kids here. Dan, tell me why, why I'm why? wrong. Why? Why do you love raising kids here? So far, it sounds terrible. Okay, I love raising kids here because I love that the parks and playgrounds are always full. I mean, you've heard all this. I love that on nice days, you don't have to make plans. You just run into friends at the on the sidewalk or the farmer's market and end up grabbing lunch or having playdates with them. I love that my kids are learning to navigate the buses and subways, and they know how to spot a good place for me to parallel park. I love that they go to a socioeconomically diverse public school. Uh, I love that the first naughty thing my son ever did was take his lemonade stand money and scoot with his buddy up the block to the corner store to buy chips. Well, I sat with a beer in the back alley where we hang out with our neighbors because we don't have yards. Totally clueless. And all the stuff that I don't love, that we don't have a basement or a yard or a second bathroom or a garage to pull into when we have, like, thousands of grocery bags and three children to bring inside, I'm willing to sacrifice to stay here. That's a fine case. That's Why'd, a fine you case. Why'd you That's leave? Why'd you leave? a fine case for the city. So, yes. So, as our listeners who've not heard my spiel as often as Allison has may not know, I we lived in New York. Um, we lived in a beautiful neighborhood called Inwood in the very north tip of Manhattan. Um, we lived there because when we moved to New York, we told our realtor that we really wanted to buy, and then we told our realtor how much money we had and he laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and then he said well there is this one neighborhood so that neighborhood was Inwood Um, and we lived there until our older daughter Lyra was four and our younger daughter was two and then we bailed we got the hell out and we moved down to Arlington Virginia where we live in the suburbs now what was the thing? Like, was there a thing that made you leave or was was it a build up of things? It was that final winter it was that last winter when like a month five of the snow and the salt and the slush and the shit everywhere. And we and our two kids and dog were in a apartment about the same size as your apartment with the same number of bathrooms and sinks as your apartment. Um, and we couldn't leave and we couldn't go anywhere and we didn't have any family anywhere near us. And all our friends were like, 
going to their upstate houses that they somehow <laughs> magically had or were their parents who lived on Long Island were taking their kids for long weekends or whatever and we were just stuck inside an apartment for hours and days and months and we almost all killed each other and we were like, fuck this shit. We are getting out. Did you and, used to value in some way or identify with like sort of having it having it rough i realize having it rough is is a it's huge rough. overstatement yeah. because right. we're we don't have it rough but you know part yeah. of the identity part of what i hold on to about wanting to be a city person is that stuff that horrible stuff is that you're tough enough to right. and that you're raising kids who are tough enough to deal with it right um and there is value in that, and I still see value in that, and there, and that is one of the things, just as you sometimes wish you had a garage to pull your car into, I often wish that I had – that my kids had the city experience that they had when they were really little. Nevertheless, the way that moving to the suburbs has made every other aspect of our lives easier and less stressful and – more pleasant and enjoyable overwhelms any possible gain we could have gotten from staying in the city. We Our money goes further. We are not constantly feeling like the next thing that happens is going to be like a financial disaster because of the incredible amount of money we're paying for a tiny apartment where everything could go wrong at any minute. Um, we have a backup support network. Part of that just has to do with where you have family. It's not a question of the suburbs versus an urban scenario, but we have backup. And we don't have it just from the in-laws that live here. We have it from the neighbors whose lives also are just a little bit less chaotic and insane to the extent that they are much more likely to be able to help us with things than our neighbors in New York ever were. I loved in New York that we would, as you say, go out on a nice summer day and see people in the you know, out on the playground or in the park or whatever, but we did not build strong bonds with them because so much I felt of everyone's lives in the city were spent cocooned in your apartment just trying to figure out how to make it through the next day without everything falling to shit. So I, That is certainly what it always felt like to us. I have had a different experience. So if the city were like it, used, it was in my 20s, the city of your 20s when you're anonymous um, and you're, you know, sort of coveting expensive clothes and have the soul-crushing professional ladder climbing that is, I think, most intense before you have kids, at least in my experience. That's not the city I live in anymore. I live in an actually very lovely, intimate place, I think. And in some ways, we're living a quasi-suburban existence in the city. We have a minivan, and we drive it more than we should. We know and hang out with all of our neighbors, just like sort of the suburban cul-de-sac um vision and we aren't anonymous at all we all help each other out a lot and i think like the fact that we are all feeling especially in the winter and winters are tough i'm not gonna you know pretend that it's otherwise but we are otherwise all cooped up in the winter we everyone's desperate to get out and so i think you know we we have we do have a full social life and we make a lot of plans not necessarily even because like we're dying to hang out with friends, but we're we're dying to have you know some interaction. I feel like everyone's kind of in the same boat, and it makes for a very full full social life, and also very like I, I you know I feel like I don't have any family nearby, and neither does my husband, and our friends are, have become our family in that way. I guess in the end, I come down as thinking that you are probably right that in an ideal world. A city is a better place to raise 
many kids, but we couldn't hack it. Basically, we just we didn't quite have enough money to pull it off, or we didn't have quite enough guts to pull it off. But I will say that it has been pretty eye-opening for the last five years now since we moved to Arlington, how much calmer my life is than it was then. And part of that has to do with the job that I have as opposed to jobs I had then. And part of it has to do with having older kids as opposed to younger kids. With older kids, there's just certainly a sense – you have less of a sense that everything could fall apart at at the drop of a hat. And part of it is the family support network that we have. But I can't help but think that a lot of it simply has to do with the fact that our day-to-day environment is less chaotic and insane. Um, and we're much less close to living on the razor's edge of of like personal and emotional disaster than we were when we lived in the city. And our lives are constantly almost fo- always falling apart. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you found happiness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another good it's another good topic that we'd like to hear from our listeners on. So email us, tell us why we're right or wrong. But let's move on to recommendations, Dan. Okay, so um last weekend we uh we took a day trip to a city. <laughs> it was crazy. My children walked around and said, What are these tall buildings? Uh no, we went to Baltimore. And I would like to recommend in Baltimore the American Visionary Art Museum. Um, it is amazing. It is an entire museum dedicated to self-taught artists who create work out of some kind of driving personal vision, visionary artists. They are sometimes called outsider artists. There's overlap in those categories. Um, the visionary artist who many of our listeners might have heard of is Howard Finster, who made the album covers for Reckoning by R.E.M. and Little Creatures by Talking Heads. Um, but this is an entire museum dedicated to the art of artists like that who make things that are sort of uncategorizable and that you might never see in another kind of art museum. So I love the museum and my kids were bananas about this museum. So here's what I loved about it. I loved that it sort of blew up their idea of what art can be, that art doesn't have to be like a fancy painting or a sculpture of a naked lady, that it can be mysterious or gross or funny, that it can be a 10-foot model of the Lusitania made out of 100,000 toothpicks, or it can be a machine that farts when you press a button. Um, That is all art. And they loved that there was so much to do and so much to see and that it wasn't boring and that it was interesting. And they have liked other art museums and been interested in them, but they have never had the kind of sustained level of interest in an experience as they have had here. There was a treehouse and there were automata that move when you turn a crank. And also there was a machine that farts when you press a button. The whole thing was a huge success. It also has a great gift shop where the tooth fairy can buy novelty necklaces. (laughs) That sounds really, really great, actually. It's outstanding. I've yet to find a museum that my kids really love, so that's cool. Um, Okay, I'm going to recommend not a thing but kind of a concept. I'm going to recommend... (laughs) Living in a city. Blow your mind. No, not playing kids' music for your kids. This is one of those instances where I'm going to say I'm right because this is how I do it and you're wrong Uh because you did it another way. Uh Um, But we've never played kids music for our kids. Maybe actually that's not true. We did a few times because my mom would send us a CD or try to make some, you know, David Weinstein happen when she was visiting. But generally our kids have been listening to what we listen to since they were born and some of it they like, some of it they don't. They've definitely like developed their, their own taste. They like electric music a lot more than acoustic. This sounds like I'm like trying to create these music snobs, but it's not true. I just like I don't get the point of kids' music because, you know, all the things in kids' music 
melody, rhythm, instruments is actually also in regular music. So what is the point of Dan Zane's? I do not know. So I am just recommending that you make your life and car trips particularly more pleasurable and you're not taking anything away from your children. They will love, you know, whatever. We're a big Super Chunk family. We love the Beach Boys. My kids love that stuff. Uh, so it's great for everyone. That's great. Music. Your Brooklyn hipster children sound really cool. <laughs> Do they have beards? Have they all grown beards? <sighs> okay, and that's our show. Please email us. You have a lot to email us about. Email us yeah. about city versus suburbs. Email about email us about your experience with um, your children with Asperger's. Email us about kids' music or museums um, at momanddad at slate.com, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. With your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now I really mean it. Don't forget, this is the last episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting that will appear in the X podcast feed. To receive new episodes of the show, you'll need to subscribe, again, either to the Slate Daily podcast or to the Mom and Dad podcast feed. Search for Slate Mom and Dad in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Do it now. Do Thanks. it now. Do it now. Do it now. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate Podcasts. Thanks to Hannah Rosen for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening.